This podcast is brought to you thanks to the generous support of Whistler Blackcomb, leaders in delivering adventure. In those eight years, we have five new businesses that would not be here without the bike park. Now, that's not without the trail system. Now, that's not that's not a coffee shop or a, or a brewery or a little local restaurant who's really benefiting from the, the tens of thousands of people that are coming. Um, this is, you know, these are these are bike shops. These are trail building associations or trail building groups. Like this is, um, you know, five new businesses in a town that doesn't have a lot. It's it's a, a pretty pretty amazing economic opportunity or economic impact. Welcome to Delivering Adventure. This is the podcast that explores what it really takes to share adventure like a pro with your friends, your family, and as a profession. My name is Chris Capio, and I'm coming to you from Whistler, British Columbia. And I'm Jordy Shepard, recording from Canmore, Alberta. After a lifetime of working extensively in different parts of the adventure guiding industry, Chris and I have teamed up to launch this podcast. In each episode, you will hear top adventure guides, managers, marketers, and athletes share their best stories, advice, and trade secrets. The goal of this podcast is to share how you can take yourself and others farther from the mountains to the office and beyond. In this episode, Curtis Polyak joins us to talk about how we can create adventure. Curtis Polyak lives and plays in Valemount, BC, and is the executive director of the Valemount and Area Recreation Development Association, known in short as VARDA, a not-for-profit association specializing in public recreation area development and management. Curtis is also a CAA professional member, snowmobile guide, avalanche instructor, and the owner-operator of Frozen Pirate Snow Services, which is a backcountry snowmobile guiding and avalanche safety operation. In this first episode of two, we are going to learn about Curtis's work on the Valemount Bike Park, which has become quite a success. Well, Jordy, this sounds great. Let's bring Curtis into the DA studio. All right. Uh, welcome to the show, Curtis. How are you today? Hey, man. I'm great. Yeah, thank you guys. Thanks a lot for having me. Stoked to be here. Uh, where are you right now? You know what? I was. I had the most perfect podcast location. I was staring. Uh, the You know, I was right at the northern tip of the Columbia Basin. Staring at Canoe Mountain, which was the kind of the northern tip of the Monashies. I had the Caribous beside me, the Rockies on the left. But that didn't work. So now I'm I'm down in the snowboard dungeon down in my basement in uh, Valemount, BC. Yeah, that that was my fault. I made you move. Sorry about that. <laughs> all good. All good. Hey, so can you tell our audience about your background? And uh, you know, you live in in Valemont, which is right up near the uh, British Columbia Alberta border near the Canadian Rockies. Um, right there. Yeah. If you can kind of tell us your background, how you, how you got there, where you're from. Absolutely. It's, it's quite the story and it's, it's involved. So I'll try to try to be somewhat brief, but, um, first off before your uh, listeners hear it, it's, it's Vail Mount. Um, if I don't correct you on that one right away, I'm going to get, uh, going to get hung out to dry here. So Vail Mount for sure. We're, we're pretty passionate about that one. Um, how I ended up in Vail Mount, you know, it's pretty interesting. I was, um, kind of born in Northern BC in Prince George. Um, I spent uh, most of my, you know, up till, till about 19, 20 years old there. And then always in the bush at a cabin, fishing, um, grew up in the local snowboard hills. Um, not a huge backcountry family, like an outdoor family, but never really in the high mountains. No, no climbing, no mountaineering, nothing like that. Just, just the bush, um, Northern BC bush. And then, you know, graduated, graduated high school and was kind of lost and doing some odd jobs and basically just living in the back of a Toyota pickup truck, uh, fly fishing when I could and working when I absolutely had to. Um, so, you know, had, having a lot of fun, but then feeling a little bit lost and 
ended up um, finding a, a, a upstart college program in a, in a place I'd never heard of um, called Vailmount. Um, it was a, a, an adventure program called the Northern Outdoor Recreation and Ecotourism Program. It was the first year the college program ever came or ever was what was out there. It was the first year it ever ran. Just a certificate program, so just the one year, but uh, sounded interesting to me. So I literally packed up my little truck and and drove to Vailmount and participated in this college program. And it uh, it kind of set my career for outdoor tourism, adventure tourism, ecotourism, whatever you want to call it. Um, just in the adventure realm, it, it basically started me delivering adventure, which was pretty cool. Um Took the experience from that program and and ended up in Jasper, Alberta for, I think, five seasons. I worked as a fly fishing guide in the national park there. Um, went down to Revelstoke one of the winters. Um, I, you know, I sent out resumes to everywhere. Um, fell in love with sledding in Vailmount, I guess, wind back a little bit. And then uh, while I was in Jasper, just was peppering everybody with resumes and, you know, um, for, for the snowmobile guiding operations. And snowmobile guiding is actually a really small activity. There's not a lot of operations out there doing it. And uh, I got picked up by Glacier House down in Revelstoke. Um, so moved everything I had down to Revelstoke and, you know, spent an amazing season down there. And when I was in the college program, I, I met a young girl, beautiful little blonde girl who's, who's now my wife and, you know, father of uh, two kids and married for, a, you know, oh God, I mean, shouldn't even say it, quite a long time. Um, <laughs> and we always wanted to come back to Vailmount, but there wasn't a lot of employment here. There wasn't a lot of work to do. Um, we ended up just kind of making the push and making the move and getting back here. And it was kind of karma. Um, Varda, what we'll talk about here in a bit more, um, was just created and it was having some issues and it needed some staff. And I had a little bit of a reputation as an outdoor guy and, and they picked me up and gosh, that was 17 years ago. Oh, wow. That's amazing. It, it's so cool how these little programs, whatever they are, um, we're talking about a tourism-based uh, program that you did there in, in the local college, can be so influential um, uh, just by giving people opportunities and, and giving you a chance to see what's what's actually out there. So that's that's super cool that that was your path. Now, can you describe Vailmount for us? Like, you know, a lot of people may have just driven through it on the way to places like Jasper or Edmonton or, or Vancouver. But I bet you there's a lot of people that actually haven't been there at all because it, it is a ways uh, away from kind of the center of, of British Columbia or if you're, if you're listening from around the world. Can you describe like what what is the town like? Because it's not, um, you know, we've, we've done a lot of discussions with people in, in Canmore and Whistler and, and kind of the big resorts, resort towns, but Vailmount is not like that at all. No, it's not. And I, I definitely say Vailmount's in a, a community that's in transition. Um, you know, we have, we were that mill town, you know, big sawmill. It was, it was full industrial, full logging com or logging community, which was great. It was, you know, provided some great jobs. It was a lot of, lot of local employment. Um, and then, you know, the, the government made some changes in the, in the kind of the lumber industry of where wood can go. And, and that resulted in somebody buying our timber license and our mill actually shutting down and, you know, the majority of the community losing their jobs. Um, so we saw a lot of people move away at that, at that point, you know, everyone lost benefits, lost, lost programs. And, um, so we, we lost a lot of our local population. We're sitting now around 900 to a thousand people. Um, we're still, we're still that we're still a forestry town. There's a local community forest that is amazing for our community, provides jobs, provides investment back into the community. Um, you know, CN rail also comes through here. So we have, uh, it's a railway town as well. Um, but really we've, we've made a, we've definitely made a transition into the tourism realm for sure. 
we've been known as um, you know a backcountry and winter snowmobile community for a long time. The, um, some of the changes that you know the company I work with has done, Bart has done, is with working with you know it's kind of the sled ski side of things, the snowmobile side of things, now the mountain bike side of things. Um, as well as there's a, there's a non-motorized group as well um, that's developing some hiking trails, a little bit of backcountry ski opportunities, but we're still quite an untapped community. Um, the people that are coming here now due to the activities that we have, they're, they're assuming the town's full of Arcteryx and Gore-Tex and people walking around in ski boots. And because they're like you mentioned, Chris, they're like the, you know, the Canmore, the Whistler, the Jasper that's not Valemount. Um, it's, it's, we're, we're turning into a more outdoor based community with our residents here. So people are moving here for those opportunities. And it's really neat because those, those people that are moving here with that outdoor spirit really have the opportunity to help shape this community. And it's been something that's been really cool to be a part of. So we're starting to really see that change into, I don't want to call it a resort community by any means, but into an outdoor based adventure community um but spearheaded by the locals that live here so it's been super cool so so based on on that you know if if you haven't gone through Vail mount what i can tell you is it is beautiful like you, you've got this really big valley the giant mountains all around uh you've got kim basket lake which is which is right there so there's a lot of adventure opportunities there so can you tell us about some of your adventure related achievements while while you've been out there like, what are the things that stand out to you? Yeah, you know, I think um, when I started with Varda in Tooth, so I guess I'll start back. Varda is the Vale Mountain Area Recreation Development Association. It's, a, it's, it's unique. It's a nonprofit association that used to be a snowmobile club. But back in 2004, there was conflicts in the backcountry between, you know, motorized adventures. So heli ski, cat skiing, non-motorized users, snowmobile users. Um, and everybody came to the table. Um, the government helped us with this with a sustainable resource management plan, and everybody came to the table and created what we now call VARDA, the Vale Mountain Area Recreation Development Association. And that group now, while it still is primarily, its, it's main task is managing the recreational snowmobile tourism industry for the town. Um, we've led off into, um, and that's working alongside heli ski companies, cat ski companies, the business. It's a really unique group, um, but that led us into kind of the expansion and, and where whatever vision we saw for our community, we were able to help implement it. And it was a, it's been a really unique thing. And those are some of the biggest accomplishments we've done. Um, you know, we created the world's first ever snowmobile assisted ski hill. Uh, it's called Crystal Ridge. Um, you know, that's a pretty amazing accomplishment. During that SRMP process, that management plan process, they consulted local stakeholder groups is what they wanted to see in, in a sort of a management plan. Um, and a local group had this idea. They were they called themselves the Power Borders back then, and they had this idea that um, they wanted this zone where they could do sled skiing, but not in a not in a massive um, you know a busy snowmobile managed area or where a lot of people were. More more of a remote zone. So you know we have six runs now on Crystal Ridge. They're you know they're two thousand two thousand vertical feet, almost two kilometers long. Um, the challenges there not creating a bunch of avalanche paths so you know really it's it's tree skiing it's a little bit shallower angle um, but you know it's a super it's absolutely an amazing thing to do um, also with Varda there we've created the Vale Mount Bike Park over the last eight seasons which is probably I'm sure we'll talk about a lot more which has completely changed our community and really put Vale Mount on the map as a summer destination not just that pass-through um, 
personally, I, and I've been with Varda for 17 years as the executive director. I also work on their, you know, their avalanche forecaster, their field tech, kind of jack of all trades, working for a really good board of directors and a core group of volunteers. Alongside that, I run an avalanche training and a snowmobile guiding company um, called Frozen Pirate Snow Services. So we're um, kind of a boutique company. We offer, you know, small sized avalanche training courses for the public, the recreational courses. Um, we're a tenured guiding operation, so doing things the right way is really important to us to, to do things the right way and work work properly with ministries and stakeholders and, and government stuff. You know, I'm tenure veteran on the Avalanche Canada Board of Directors and involved with, you know, many, many, many different hats. So, you know, um, I think the proud of the things I've done and, you know, more excited on the things we can do. So, Curtis, I have uh, some roots in Valemont as well my uh, yeah. parents retired there i after i grew up in jasper park and my parents did retire there they both passed away but we still have the family homestead there out uh You're kidding i had no yeah, idea yeah on petaluna road there um but uh yeah so I, i'm quite connected to the the valemont uh valemont community there and uh yeah friend owns and operates three ranges brewing there some you're, friends, you're friends with mike uh yeah rundy yeah oh okay yeah 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 her father was her father was a park warden in jasper and and uh yeah great beer yeah and so i have spent some time at the vale mountain bike park there tell us about it it's uh it's quite incredible yeah it's a it's a project of passion for sure and, and quite an amazing story um, when I mentioned Varda I, alongside a non-motorized group, you know, we're non-motorized as well with the, with the mountain bike side of things, it gets a bit convoluted, but, um, in about 2011, there's a group, a local group called the Yellowhead Outdoor Recreation Association, and they're more in charge of, you know, hiking trails, some, some of the backcountry ski opportunities that we have here. Um, and they, they created there again, another implant from Jasper. So, you know, there's, there's quite a few of you guys here that come, come over to Vail Mountain. Um, there's a young kid there named Andreas Tony, and he, he was living in Vail Mountain had, you know, had this dream of, um, you know, building bike trails and, and, and developing Vail Mountain into some sort of a, a trail network or even providing something just for the locals. Really, I don't think at that time it was supposed to be this big tourist attraction or this big recreational economic impact opportunity. So they, they contacted, um, uh, Imba Canada to create a master plan for an area we call Five Mile, which is really right at the back of Vail Mountain. It's I can be up at the bike park within five minute pedal from my house. Um, they created this master plan, uh, a first stage of a master plan, and it was supposed to be about a five year build. Um, but that plan sat dormant for I would say up to three or four years. Really, nobody had nobody acted on it, um, and it was basically because Yora didn't have the capacity to implement that sort of plan. They just they didn't have a staff. They were strictly a volunteer run organization. That was you know in a small town like this, you've got the the STP committees, the same ten people committees. So everybody gets a bit tired, and um, they approached me. They approached me like that. They approached me at Varda, and. Um, I, I was a biker. I had a, a very, very strong history of success. I'm going to be honest and in, in getting large projects done and finding funding for large projects. And my, probably the hardest part about the bike park was convincing a group of business owners, um, local governments, snowmobilers, like my Varda board, convincing them that, uh, you know, bike trails were going to be the future of Elmont or could play a big part in the future of Elmont. Luckily I was successful. Um, and we're now on the eighth, we just finished our eighth season of building. 
Um, we have 54 trails, like some of those are connector trails, of course. And, um, but, you know, we're very proud of a kind of a, a new school, polished, very high quality downhill network, as well as now with the last couple of years, we added up to 30 kilometers of cross country network on the north side, on the Swift Creek side. It's, in my opinion, it's been one of the best things that has ever happened to Vailmount in the last, you know, 15 years since, you know, or 20 years since I've been here. Yeah, this summer I had the opportunity, I think it had just opened the, what's it called? The Secret Garden? The Zen Garden. Zen Garden. Zen Garden. Zen Garden. Yeah. 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 I, I won't give it away, but go ride it. It's <laughs> you know, we want everybody to come. Yeah, we want everybody to come. I think that's one thing that you're going to notice when you come here. Someone will grab you by the hand and pull you out mountain biking. Like if you want to find your way around the trails, someone will show you. It's it's pretty cool. Yeah. So how does a bike park benefit the community of Elmount and the surrounding area? You know, I think that's something I think that's something that surprised me, um, surprised our local government, surprised our business owners. You know, I had some we have a we're a, a destination destination management organization, so resort municipality. So we get some a, a hotel room tax that comes back into tourism development, marketing, that sort of thing. Um, and again, trying to get some some funding to build this bike park. Um, some of these some of the the people contributing to this fund or some of the larger business owners, you know, we didn't, we didn't, even myself, I didn't really understand how far in depth mountain bikers go into their culture, um, into involving themselves in a local community. They're a user group that, that shows up in a community. They want local food. They want local beer. You know, they want to camp and stay close by. Um, and it's completely shifted the mentality of some of these local businesses. Uh, one of our largest hotels, who was a skeptic of what we were actually doing with bike trails, now is investing tens of thousands of dollars into storage units and marketing campaigns. And, you know, it's really come full circle. In those eight years, we have five new businesses that would not be here without the bike park. Now, that's not with the trail system. Now, that's not that's not a coffee shop or a, or a brewery or a little local restaurant who's really benefiting from the, the tens of thousands of people that are coming. Um, this is, you know, these are these are bike shops. These are trail building associations or trail building groups like this is, um, you know, five new businesses in a town that doesn't have a lot. It's that's a, a pretty, pretty amazing economic opportunity or economic impact. And then the way bikers like to involve themselves into local culture. They, you know, they want that local sandwich. They want a taste of the towns they're in. They want a taste of the culture they're in. Belmont downtown core used to be busy. There was nobody down there. It was a, it was a, it was a beautiful place to be, but it was a ghost town. Now, you know, all summer long, it's full of smiley people. It's full of bikes. It's full of people biking around trucks with bikes on them. It's a, it's a vibrant downtown core and the economic impact, like it just, it can't be missed. Yeah. Yeah, when I was there this summer, it was packed, jammed, yeah. packed. So oh, the yeah. shuttle service with the the van and the racks of for bikes on the trailer that was there was the people were lined up like they line up for the chairlift. It's pretty it, exciting. It was yeah, absolutely yeah. crazy, and I, I've watched this over the last few years how it's just it's just blossomed. And so where did the, where did the funding come from for this? Like how, how, you know, what partnerships were developed, required grants? For sure. Yeah. So we're, we're lucky that we're lucky a, that we're a nonprofit association that has an employee. Um, you know, that's a, that's a very good thing. All of this work can get pretty tiresome for a group of volunteers. So, you know, part of the work, one of the most important parts of my job is finding funding. Um, Valmount's also a tagline that, that I, I often use is that we are, we are the north of the south and the south of the north. And that puts us 
into uh, gives us opportunity by it puts us into a classification as a northern community but maybe in like the thompson okanagan and then also the columbia basin um, so i have potentially three different variations where we can look for look for funding look for grant opportunities um, but it's not all that's not where it all came from we have you know we have a strong membership we have over 320 mountain bike members annually um, you know those guys create a create quite a substantial impact into the community. We have, you know, local fundraisers where we're in, we've invested heavily into relationship building with Vailmount Community Forest, Tourism Vailmount. Um, so yeah, we're, we're lucky. It's, it's a challenge to find the funding, but having some staff kicking around, someone who's dedicated to moving these projects forward is a really big benefit. And tell us, tell our listeners about the building process. How did it actually get built out, the planning of it? you know, the actual, uh, shovels and equipment. For sure. We, you know, we, we actually get contacted a lot on how this stuff is done, how we're successful, how other communities can be successful as smaller BC communities are, well, communities everywhere are transitioning to some form of, you know, sustainable tourism. One thing I could say that I, I, it it took me a while to learn was to plan, uh, really plan, consult, talk, um, so when you actually construct a trail, there's there's so many stages. There's just because you want to build a trail somewhere doesn't mean that trail should be there. It doesn't mean that style of trail fits there. It doesn't mean the ground wants that trail there. It doesn't mean the community wants that trail there. There's a lot of work to do that goes in behind, you know, deciding where a trail should be. And you know, luckily, the group back in the first days created this master plan with with Imba, and that that gave me a kind of a starting point as to what to build and where to build. But we very quickly noted noticed deficiencies or that maybe parts of this plan didn't quite fit into what our community vision was. So we, we, we did change some things over. But, you know, when you're starting to look at trail development, you're looking at, A, is this a good place for this? Um, you know, is this trail going to be able to stay here for the next 50 years? Um, is it a sustainable place to put a trail? You know, what is there, is it, is it wet? Is it dry? Does the forest handle it? What type of trail can I put here? What's my user group? Does my community want a trail here? Um, and then we go into, you know, actually that's ground truthing the trail. Then we go into getting, you know, permission if it's on private land, crown land or public land, we might have to involve rec sites and trails, BC. We certainly have to consult, you know, with your local first nation groups, any other stakeholders, such as a community forest or, Um, any groups involved into that land base. Um, And then, you know, once you have that dream and have ground truth and kind of gained those permissions and then it's funding source. And, you know, a big thing to decide is, are you going to machine build um, or are you going to, are you going to hand build? There's benefits to both. Uh, Machine build trails are often, um, they're a bit more expansive. They're a bit more, sometimes they can be, you know, more fascinating to look at. They've certainly are what brought people into our community and what have developed the Vailmount trail system. Um, but they also require a ton of maintenance, um, you know, to keep the brake bumps off of them. They're more of a flatter surface, more of a flow style trail, um, where if you hand build something in, they tend to wear in on their own, develop sort of an organic feel. So there's a really, there's a ton that go into, you know, trail management, trail design, trail building, trail planning. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's really, it's best done with a committee and community involvement and stakeholder engagement. And, and uh, you know, the end product can be pretty amazing as we've seen what's happened here. Yeah. I've noticed being up there with the road that kind of splits the splits, the, or dissects the whole area there on the mountainside. It seems mm-hmm. like there was extensive planning that went into there because it could be 
you know, very easily you're running into, oh no, we've got trails crossing the road all over the place. And then, you know, cars interacting with people, that which is never a good thing to have. And, you know, affecting the shuttling experience, affecting the uphill and downhill biking experience. So yeah, it seems like it was really well thought out and, uh, and really well done. Uh, I definitely have noticed the ambulance there quite a bit too. So you just know, uh, a heads up a for feeling, folks. <laughs> I had a feeling that was going to come up. Um, and I knew risk management was going to pop up here somewhere, but you know what, what you guys do for a living, what I do for a living, we're managing, we're managing for risk in activities that are inherently risky, right? So it's, you know, and it is, it, it can be, it can be a numbers game for sure. Um, with our bike park alone, our trail system alone, this summer, we have six electronic counters out of the company in Canmore there. So really high tech counters. Um, now those, those six trails recorded over 80,000 passes, um, from May to the end of September alone, 80,000 passes. Um, so when you're, when you're, I think our record's really, really good, but when you're managing, uh, the risk of something that's inherently risky, there's things are going to happen for sure. Yeah. And I like that you, I really like that you hit on the design of our trail system. Um, our goal is, you know, inclusivity, um, accessibility for all levels of riders, enjoyment for all levels of riders. So as, as our trail system has developed, we've, our goal was to always have a green, a blue and a black from as many staging areas as possible, or, you know, um, trail, trail junctions as possible, but reducing trail crossings, road crossings. Um, the last thing, the last thing I want to do when I'm riding a trail is pull out my phone and have to go on trail forks to find out where I'm going. It just drives, you know, it has to happen. It's part of the game, but it just, it drives me crazy. So we tried to make things user-friendly, make it flow, but also have variety. And if you build it right, like our, to me, our, our quote unquote 54 trails, that's about 150 trails, the way I can link them together and ride them differently and ride them backwards. And, yeah. What were some of the challenges you experienced in creating the bike park? A few of the top challenges. You certainly learn them as you go. Um, you know, you learn, you learn your challenges as you go there. They don't all come up right away. Um, I'd have to say respecting and involving, you know, all stakeholders. There's, there's ones that you wouldn't even, you wouldn't even consider or ones that you just, you wouldn't even think about. How do you, how do you reach everybody? Um, how do you involve everybody and how do you not forget somebody? And, you know, when you're, when you're working with a community, you're, you know, you're trying to consult with people, you're trying to involve people, you want to collaborate with them. Um, and then also empower them a little bit and help them help them make some choices. So, you know, a mistake I might have made was was thinking that we could push into this zone to the north that, you know, it seemed like nobody used. It was logged to pieces and nobody was using it. It was dry. It would have been a great area to develop a trail. In. Um, and, and we did that. We, we, we consulted, we spoke, we talked with the right people. And, you know, one group we forgot was it was it was kind of a local hunting ground. It was really close to Valemount. It was almost too close for my liking for people to be walking around with a bunch of guns, but, um, it was a, you know, it was a local, local hunting turf for whitetail deer. And, you know, we, that was a user group that we affected and I feel terrible for it. So, you know, that's certainly challenges is respecting everybody's needs. Um, funding, finding funding, securing funding with shovel ready projects. It's, it's not easy. Um, and I think it's a, it's the trouble for, for most of the user groups. And it's not just the funding to build, it's the funding for the, to maintain the animal that you built. Um, you know, you never know how, how busy it's going to get. We certainly did not expect this demand. 
um, the demand that we have now. We're lucky that we have great partners, um, you know, great support, and it's it's still a challenge um, to maintain what we've built. But and then now we're you know the world's the world's moving to such a, a risk adverse society. I think managing managing liability, managing um, government's perception of risk. I think all of those things are becoming more challenging, and they're they're. We're not there. We haven't seen the end of it yet. So those are some of the things we face for sure. Has it been challenging with the growth of it and the the constant development that you've done there? Like I've noticed every time I go back there, there's basically had to be amendments to the trail maps and, and the signage. Yeah. And it's it's probably just a constant thing. Yeah, I hate maps. <laughs> I wish everything could be digital, but it's just it's not the way. You know, I just I just complained about pulling out my phone. Um, yeah, we, we build, you know, we're building on momentum. Um, we're building on, you know, the, the benefits of the community, but we're really trying to build sustainably. Everything we add has been talked about, discussed, debated, um, how, who's it good for, um, you know, it's, there's, there's bro building, like building for your friends and building for yourself. And then there's pro building, right? So, you know, building for the building for a reason for the community, um, and, it's it's been a challenge to kind of to to fit all that in and, and maintain watch that capacity as we go but everything that we're doing has has a purpose um and has a you know has a, a loosey-goosey plan behind it but we're we're always thinking ahead as to you know how are we going to maintain what we've built how do we keep the quality up that's the most important thing for me people come to Vailmount because of our quality trails if i'm riding around and i find a brake bump it's not acceptable, right? And so we've got to, I know we've got to make sure that we can keep that maintenance, and and that might end up putting on the brakes of some construction. Like this past summer, we we really just, um, you know, we did a rebuild of our jump line, we extended our climbing trail, and extended a, another green access network over on the Swift side. So slowing down a little bit, but it's I don't even look at it as slowing down. I look at it as just getting a bit more picky on where you put a trail and why you put a trail somewhere. Is there talk of like right now you just roll in there, park and go biking? There's no charge for it. Is there talk of a user fee? Ah, <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> you know, even even five dollars a head would would change the outlook of mountain biking. I think everywhere, um, and especially in our area, due to the due to the high maintenance and you know high cost of stuff that we're doing. But unfortunately, with our trails are, and most trails in BC are on on public land, so they have some sort of agreement with rec sites and trails. Um, and due to the duty of care, um, a user fee has has yet to be established in a in a mountain bike trail. Um, if you look at the snowmobile industry, where we're we're charging access fees to go up a groomed trail, um, our duty of care and our 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 agreements are really from the parking lot to the end of that groomed trail. So we have to we completely maintain that groomed trail. But I look at it like a boat launch. Uh, we're maintaining a boat launch. Once you once you put your boat in the water, put your skis or your sled on the mountain at the end of that groomed trail, you're in you're in Mother Nature. You're on your own. Um, where if we invite people to a staging area and say go ride your bike, we've uh, we've built everything that's out there. Uh, we've we've manipulated the ground. We've put this there. We put that there. And yeah, it's uh, I sure hope it happens one day and that we can find a way to do it for the future of biking and the quality of the trail systems in BC. But at this point, it's it's not looking good. Are donations an option? Can people donate if they feel like it? 
hundred percent. And that's kind of how we, how we really survive. Um, trying to make donations easy. You know, we have donation boxes in the lower staging area. Um, we have e-trans, we, you know, we got signs up everywhere for e-transfers. Um, you know, we're going to move into the QR codes with a direct transfer, you know, membership is, is in very important as well. But yeah, the, the, the cool thing about bikers is they're very open to doing this. Um, and I, you know, when you, when you go ride somewhere to put 20 bucks in a donation box, as long as you can, and it's our fault too. Our donation box is kind of small, and but we've got signs everywhere. But as long as you're, as long as you're, you're, you know, you're reminded to donate, or it's 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 easy. It's a quick of a QR link, or it's a big donation box, and you got twenty bucks in. You know, the community wants to do it, and they want to support trails. It's a, I have to say, it's a, it's an extremely rewarding group to work with and to work for. Yeah. And how about future plans for expansion? We're always looking. Um, we're always looking, especially with the benefit of of what trails have done for our community. I, I truly believe that trails are the future of Vail Mountain and I don't think we've scratched the surface yet, but that's not just bike trails. You know, I think our ski touring opportunities are, are, you know, I'd like to be able to park a car and go skiing. And it's, it's very, very difficult here in Vail Mountain, but we're always looking to expand the bike, the, the trail system, the mountain bike trail system, but do it in, in a sustainable manner. Um, you don't want to, I don't want to jam, jam that mountain full, jam everything in. I want the experience to still be really good for the users. You know, I want the parking lots to be at capacity, but I want that capacity to be, you know, um, I want there to be a limit to that capacity within those parking lots. So it's still, it doesn't affect the user's experience. So, you know, ideally I hope that we can find a new location at once. And, you know, if you look at Revelstoke, for example, you've got how many areas or how many different places do you go to mountain bike, right? Where Belmont, we still really just have one. It's just really, really good. Um, so we're always looking to expand, but at the same time, you know, pump the brakes a little bit and maintain the machine and make sure it still runs properly. I'm more of a cross-country rider than a downhiller, so right. I ride my bike up as well as down, and yeah. I'm quite proud of that. Yeah. And it's an amazing yeah. uptrack there. So for folks, if it's getting jammed up there with the shuttling, uh, I really highly recommend uh, just pedal your bike uphill. There's a great uptrack. Yeah, we just added three kilometers to it this fall. Yeah, so it goes all the way up to the Turducken staging area now, which is pretty rad. So, Curtis, there's a big push in some areas that have tr traditionally been more resource-based economies to now pivot towards diversifying their their local economies, and are you know many of these areas are looking towards tourism. What's your advice? to communities out there that might be thinking about trying to build a facility like this? Like what have you learned along the way that you would want them to know? Yeah. Awesome question. And I, you know, I do love to see communities transitioning to, um, to kind of the outdoor, outdoor adventure environment or outdoor adventure based economy. And I guess one of the biggest pieces is it's really hard to do. There's, there's competition out there. And especially, you know, if you're located up in Northern BC or Northern Alberta or somewhere that's, you know, not on, not on a major highway, the most important thing. And what I think really helped us out was um, build that bright light first, like build something, build something that's better than anybody else has. Um, and it could be, it could be one jump line. It could be, you know, a, a really, really epic flow trail, um, build a, build a, what do you want to call it? build an attraction? Um, and then, you know, that could even be an Alpine coaster. It could be one of the best Alpine bike trails in BC. Just set yourself apart from the norm with even just one thing. Um, and then that word of mouth and the organic movement and marketing and people coming, 
that's going to spread and it's going to light a it's going to light a small fire it's going to get some more wood put on it and it's going to grow like wildfire um, if you've done it right the first time um, so really try to build find out what that attraction is find what best fits your community but also the people have to want it um, you know there has to be buy-in within your local community and in a in a purely industrial community that change takes time um, people think of tourism, it, it could be low paying jobs and, you know, a lot of in the service industry and, you know, that's sure that's true on the low end side of things, but there's, you know, there's a ton of room for unique ideas, entrepreneurs, um, you, know, you know, new business owners, you, you just need to be creative. And I, as far as the community goes, I really believe in creating, creating something that sets you apart from another destination or another area, um, is probably the best first step to to get the ball rolling. I uh, live in Whistler now, and just down the road in Squamish, they have always there's been a, a lot of mountain biking there for you know for quite a while, yeah. but it really exploded when the federal government gave the local uh, community about a hundred thousand dollars or so, and they invested half of that into a, a trail, uh, half Nelson, which um, is amazing. But I think it, it did a, a few different things, put the area on the map for this one great trail, but it also starts to set the standard that you're measuring, you know, everything else that you do. And it's like, okay, well, then if we did this, then what's next? What else can you do? And, and it just spurs, um, I think it spurs a lot of uh, interest in the local community to want to, to do even, even more once you see that that's possible. Yeah, I, I agree. And that, that half Nelson's, a, that's a flow trail. Hey, if I remember correctly, that's I've, right. I've written it. yeah. So it's a flow style trail, but it's, it's, it's in and more of an old school trail network. So I think the success of what we've done um, started with flow trails. Like you can't, you can't build a double black diamond trail. Um, and, and that's your attraction. It's just, it's, it's for such a small user group. So really try to try to develop your attraction. That's going to, you know, get the most bang for your buck and be accessible to the most people. And I do believe that flow trails did that for us, but you can only ride so much flow. Um, you've got to, then you've got to branch off into, but then you can add your more historic lines, your more rake and rides, your, you know, your other network, but yeah, try to try to get something that's quite accessible. And I think that's what Half Nelson did for that network. And, you know, that's what some of our signature flow tra trails have certainly done for us. If we just built a black diamond network of old school hand-built trails, nobody would, nobody would come here. No, it's, it's funny. I talked to a, I talked to this guy, he started a, a hiking guiding business and I, I was chatting to him and I said, so who are your customers? Like, where are they coming from? What do they like to do? What do they like? And, it, and his response was, I don't know. And I'm thinking, well, if you don't know what your customers want, <laughs> then how do you even know you're building the right trips for them? And, you know, a little bit to your point, I think he was building trips that he wanted to do uh, versus what his customers or, or potential customers out there wanted to do. And, and yeah, it didn't work out very well. And so knowing, knowing what you, your, the people that are coming to your area are going to want to do is, is super important, even though the locals might want, uh, you know, a certain type of, of activity for themselves. You know, I, I agree. I, that's one of the hardest human factors to get around is, am I building something for myself? Am I building something for the public? Um, am I building something for the, the greater public? And, you know, the a community really has to decide that. Are they 
are they building? Do they want to do this to build tourism or do they want to do this for the enjoyment of the community? Because they're, it kind of goes two different directions. We're going to pause here for now, Curtis, and pick up the rest of this conversation in our next episode. If you would like to learn more about Varda and the Valemount Bike Park, you can visit their website at ridevalemount.com. If you want to find Curtis at his snowmobile guiding and avalanche instruction company, Frozen Pirate, you can find him at frozenpirate.com. You can also learn more about Curtis by checking out his Instagram page at Frozen Pirate. We have posted all of these links in the show notes. Okay, Jordy, what were some of your takeaways from what Curtis had to say? Well, first, Chris, uh, people can contact Curtis at that contact information, Frozen Pirate info there. But uh, from what he told us, he's pretty darn busy, pretty booked up for the season, but you might be able to squeeze in some of his services if you ask nicely. So one of the takeaways was think big and convince others to think big too. It's okay to dream. In fact, we need to. This helps us keep ourselves and others motivated to keep going. The other side of it is this takes resources. So first of all, a big hurdle is you need to find funding. And on top of that, it also takes a lot of time and effort. Curtis mentioned, which I thought was hilarious because I've experienced this, the STP committees the same 10 people that are always working on driving an organization forward. You need to find the people who can spend time to build whatever you are creating. Even this podcast, as simple as it sounds, has taken Chris and I over 400 hours of our time to date to develop. Fortunately for me, I have Chris, the SOP, same one person, who is a driving force behind our podcast project. Jordy, excellent points. I'm just going to add a, one more here, and that is to build what people want. If you want to be successful, you have to build experiences that people want. This is something I've learned the hard way. Well, this sounds like a no-brainer. If you're already an expert, this might not be what you want to deliver. This can create a challenge for people. If you're serious about delivering great adventure experiences, whether it's building trails, facilities, lodges, or just leading trips, you really need to think about what your guests or visitors are going to want. As Curtis shared with us, this meant that to be successful, Varda had to build a variety of trails that were mostly aimed at beginner and intermediate riders. While there are still some advanced trails in the bike park's network, they knew that those trails alone wouldn't make them successful. Applying this to experiences, it's funny how many people have asked me over the years how hard heli skiing is. For many people who may not be familiar with the heli ski experience, their perception is that it is for experts only, and I've even met people that thought that you have to jump out of the helicopter because that is what they've seen on TV. I always point out that if that was the case, heli skiing companies would not have a lot of customers to draw upon. That said, if you want to deliver high-end niche adventures, there are opportunities. To be successful, you just need to do them extremely well. While there are more people that go hiking than climbing on Everest, there are still guided trips on Mount Everest. Speaking of building what people want, let's turn this over to you, the listener. What were your takeaways? You can share your thoughts on this episode or this show by sending us an email at team at deliveringadventure.com. You can also find us 
via our social media feeds or at our website, deliveringadventure.com. We have posted all of this info and links to where you can find Curtis in the show notes. Before you go, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure that you take a moment to follow or subscribe to the show so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Next up is Curtis telling us all about the development of North America's first snowmobile-assisted ski area. Thanks for listening.